Our scripture passage this morning is in the book of Joshua. We're spending some time in the book of Joshua and Judges. And uh, Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, and then we'll be going on from there. The 24th chapter of Joshua at verse 14. And it's page 282 if you use the Bible in the seat rack. In fact, these verses are the theme verses for our current study of messages. Uh, Christian survivor, we're crossing out the word survivor, and we're changing it to Christian victor, 21st century edition. How can we experience victory in Jesus Christ as believers in Jesus in this decaying and degrading culture in which we now live? Has anybody noticed the sign over the door as you come into the sanctuary? How many of you know what it says? Have you looked at it lately? Choose you this day whom ye will serve. And so after recounting the many blessings that God has bestowed upon his people, this is the challenge that God or Joshua gave to the people of Israel. Verse 14 of Joshua chapter 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. For if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now this is near the end of Joshua's life. Joshua made a commitment to the Lord. And he called God's people to make a commitment to the Lord. Joshua and his family were able to keep their commitment. Some of the people whose lives overlapped Joshua were able to keep their commitment. But it didn't take very long until there were people who didn't even make the commitment. Joshua made a commitment to the Lord that he was able to keep. And the people make here the exact same commitment. Verse 16 of this 24th chapter. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the people through whom's midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. They just made a commitment they can't keep. They just made a commitment they won't keep. And look at how Joshua responds, verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he's a jealous God, he will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. Paraphrase, you can't do it. In fact, God's people had made a very similar commitment when they had stood before Moses. When the former generation had met the Lord on Mount Sinai, they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Lie. Maybe not really a lie, but they couldn't do it. A few weeks later, they were worshiping a golden calf. While Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, they were down below breaking all ten. The people who had committed themselves to him had not do it, had not done it. Joshua had seen that. He'd been a witness to them making commitments before. 
Joshua knew from experience that it was easy for the people to promise obedience to the Lord, but it was quite something else for them actually to be able to do it. So what is the difference between those who commit themselves to the Lord and are able to keep their commitments and those who commit themselves and they can't keep it? Put another way, what's the difference between victory and failure in the Christian life? Joshua kept telling the people what they needed to do, and they kept committing themselves to do it, and then time after time they failed. As I was thinking about this, I remember a story that was told by Dr. Adrian Rogers. Uh, He's still on radio, at least. I don't know if he's on TV, but uh, he's gone to be with the Lord. But he told a story, he told about the time that he was preaching in Romania after the fall of communism and that evil communist regime. And he was riding in a car with a Christian by the name of Joseph Song. And Joseph was a man who had been brutally tortured and beaten for his faith under the cruel dictator, Ceausescu. They had threatened to kill Joseph, but Joseph, more than any other man, was a leader in the great revival that happened in Romania that God brought. And while riding in Joseph's little car, Dr. Rogers asked Joseph a question. Joseph, he said, would you please tell me about your concept of American Christianity? And he said, Adrian, I'd rather not do that. (laughs) Dr. Rogers responded, no, Joseph, please tell me. And he said, well, Adrian, in America, the key word is commitment. And Dr. Rogers said, well, that's good, isn't it, Joseph? And he said, no, not particularly. I don't think it's good. He says, as a matter of fact, if you were to use the word commitment for me or to me, I wouldn't even have a a word in the Romanian language to even translate that word. He said the word commitment did not even come into use in the United States until about the 60s. He says it was in the dictionary, but it wasn't in full use. But he said over and over again in the churches of America today, you hear about the word commitment, commitment, commitment. And Joseph said, I begin to think about that. And he said, when a new word comes in, it generally pushes out an old word. So I begin to think, what word is commitment taking the place of? And he says, as I read the Bible, I found out that the word that commitment has replaced is the word surrender. Surrender. Dr. Rogers asked, well, Joseph, what is the difference between commitment and surrender? And he said, when you make a commitment, you are in control. But when you surrender, you are no longer in control. He said, for example, you can commit to win souls because you decide to do it. You can commit to study your Bible. You can commit to tithe. And you say, I have decided to do this or that. And then he said, suppose a man puts a gun on you and says, stick him up. And you lift your hands this way, and you don't commit to anything. (laughs) You surrender. He told Dr. Rogers that you as Americans like to be in control. You like to make commitments, but the true word is surrender. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I'm not going to wrangle over words, whether it's right to use the word commitment or surrender or whichever word. In fact, the Bible says we're not to wrangle over words. That's what the factious man does. And so if I use the word commitment, either today or from here on out, don't call me on it and say, Pastor, I think you mean surrender, but let me suggest something that helps us understand it. Victory in the Christian life doesn't begin with commitment. In fact, the whole of 
of our Christianity doesn't begin with commitment. It begins with surrender. It begins with surrender. And only when we have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, only then can we keep our commitments, whatever they might be. We can only keep them in the Lord as we have surrendered our lives to him. It begins with complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How could Joshua keep his commitment? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's because he had fully surrendered his life and the life of his family to the Lord. So I want us to take our Bibles and see how God drew Joshua more and more closer to him and how Joshua surrendered his life to the Lord to whom he was close. So we're going to really go through several scripture passages today and, and uh, the book of, of Joshua and go back to Exodus first because Joshua enjoyed a living dynamic experience of the Lord where Joshua knew the Lord, where he saw with his own eyes how the Lord worked. He saw the Lord work. He experienced the work of the Lord, and he was able to enjoy these things of the Lord because he had surrendered his life to the Lord. But first of all, we need to talk a little bit. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing them personally and knowing them intimately. Joshua nurtured his intimacy with the Lord. The Hebrew word to know, translated to know, yada, was used in the Old Testament to speak of the intimate sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. In other words, it's experiential knowledge. It's knowing through experience, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual. It's to know someone in our experience. Not to know just about them or to know who they are, to be able to pick them out of a room or out of a picture on a Facebook posting, but to know someone in experience. You see, when the Apostle Paul cried out that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, his desire was to experience Christ to see God's power at work in his life and the life of others, experience his work, to know Christ intimately. You can't know somebody intimately from a distance. Another way to put it is that both Joshua and Paul wanted to be in the Lord's inner circle of intimacy. Each one of us have our own circles when it comes to relationships. We have our inner circle, our family and friends, those who are close to us. They know us very well. They're our trusted confidence sometimes, or we know them well enough not to trust them in confidence. <laughs> but for the most part, these are people that we love and trust. We know them well. We have even our inner circle beyond that of those whom we can rely on. We often see this, in, or we also see this with Jesus in his relationship with the disciples because he had one circle of his 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And then there was an inner circle that just included Peter, James, and John. And these three experienced a deeper relationship and intimacy with Jesus than did the rest of the 12. Peter and James and John were the only disciples who were with Jesus when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transformed in his glory before their eyes and standing with them. Another circle of Elijah and, and Moses and, and, and Jesus. They saw Moses and Elijah. 
That was a circle that did not include the other nine disciples. When Jesus went into the room of a little girl who had died, Jairus' daughter, it says, the scripture says that Jesus went in, the parents went in, and only Peter, James, and John went into that room. Maybe because it was a small room, but I believe because they were in that inner circle with Jesus, and they saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. Talking about seeing Jesus work. And in our own relationships, we have ever-widening circles of friends and acquaintances where the way that we really know people becomes less and less as it moves out. I saw a thing on Facebook not too long ago where one of my friends <laughs> had posted something about making friends and making them on Facebook in particular. And he said, and it went something like this, you don't go into a grocery store and make friends by telling somebody, the dog threw up on my carpet this morning. Or this afternoon, I'm taking my kids to the pool. <laughs> but we'll post those things on Facebook. I know what we mean by that. But uh, we think we're making friends by these kinds of things that really aren't intimate at all. And here's the cool thing when it comes to our intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incontrovertible fact that some Christians seem to enjoy and experience that is much closer and more intimate with God than so many Christians do. And here's the thing, and both, Christian, or both scripture and experience teach, teach this, and we'll see that is, this is true, that it is us, it is me, not God, who determines the degree of intimacy that I have with him. It is us, not God, who determines that degree of intimacy. We are at this moment, you are at this moment, as close to God as you really choose to be. True, there are times we want to be closer to God. We, we want to know that deeper intimacy. But when it comes to the point, we're not prepared to pay the price involved because that usually involves giving up something that's holding us back. And we'd rather hold on to the something rather than get closer to God. We don't want to live up to those stringent conditions that it takes. And so we settle for a less demanding level of Christian living and a less knowledge of God in our lives. So we're going to see through Joshua's experience with the Lord, Joshua's desire to be close to the Lord and how that works. And, and we're going to see four circles, four circles of intimacy with God. So please turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to see two or three passages in the book of Exodus to begin with and then finish in the book of Joshua. Exodus chapter 19 at verse 11. The 19th chapter of Exodus at verse 11. On several occasions, God had summoned Moses to ascend Mount Sinai to have fellowship with him. And twice that conference lasted for 40 days. There are two times, twice, that, that Moses spent 40 days on the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 11, God is about to give the law to Moses. And the people are going to see the visible presence of God, but God's establishing limits. Verse 11, concerning the people, God said, And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Ouch, that sounds pretty harsh. (laughs) Now, being in the outer circle, the people could approach the mountain, but if they ascended it or touched the mountain, they would die. And we wonder, why this exclusiveness? Doesn't God want everybody to come up on the mountain with him? Later we will learn it was because they were a stiff-necked, rebellious people. They were a sinful people. They would not put their sin behind them. They wanted to hang on to that. They were in no condition to get close to God because our God is what? A consuming fire. So they were relegated to that outer circle, watching God from a distance. Now in this 24th chapter, in the 24th chapter of, of the book of Exodus, we find yet another circle, a second circle, at verse 9 of the 24th chapter. And here we find a tighter circle that pressed past the barrier that excluded the rest of the nation. Verse 9 of the 24th chapter, and Moses is going up on the mountain again. Verse 9, then Moses went up on the mountain with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Now look at their experience of God here. It's so much greater than those in the outer circle who couldn't even touch the mountain because of their sinful condition. They got a much more intimate vision and experience of God, and we see that in verse 10. Have you ever seen this before? I'm sure I've read this a hundred times. I've read through the Bible several times. I've read the book of Exodus hundreds of times, and I've, I've just, in my thinking, I just never really saw this for what it says. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. They fellowshiped around the table in the immediate, not the immediate presence, but within vision of seeing God, But there was no true transformation. How do we know that they were not transformed by their experience of God? Because a short time later, they go down the hill and they worship the golden calf. And Aaron, who is mentioned here, he builds the golden calf. How, well, I won't say that. (laughs) I was going to say, how dumb can you get? But it's making people, because we're we're all the same way. And then we see yet a third circle in verse 13, a never closer circle. So Moses arose with Joshua. There's our hero. With Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. This was typical of Joshua, getting as close to God as he could. In a little bit, we're going to see what qualified Joshua for such intimacy, but uh, at this time to be in the third circle. But I want to mention the inner circle first. Verse 15 of this chapter. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from amidst the crowd. And according to verse 17, all the people in the outer circle, that far outer circle, all they could see was the consuming fire, the glory of the Lord, up there on the mountain someplace. Yet Moses entered the midst of the cloud and was on the mountain for 40 days. 
All this time, Joshua stayed on the mountain experiencing the nearness of God. Closer than Aaron, closer than the elders, much closer than the people of Israel. The Bible is silent as to what Joshua actually saw or, or experienced, but it, it must have been incredible what he saw as he saw Moses go into the midst of the glory of God. But it instilled in Joshua a desire to know God more and more. And Joshua made it the habit of his life to draw ever closer into an intimate relationship with God. So we see this in the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus, as we keep turning in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33 at verse 7, where Joshua experienced the Lord in what is called the tent of meeting, the tent of meeting. And since we have left that other mountaintop experience and, and come to this one, since we have left the mountain in chapter 24 of Exodus, the people of Israel have rebelled. They have worshipped the golden calf. And for the most part, they have proven that they cannot have intimacy with God. And of all things, God has removed his presence from their camp. God says that if he were in the midst of them, he would destroy them. You know, it's kind of like that. If I tell you the secret, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> you know, but it's that, that kind of idea where God can't dwell among them because they are stiff-necked, they are rebellious, they won't turn from their sin. And so on account of this, on account of their sin and rebellion, first God had said, I will send my presence with you. I will be with you. After they rebelled, God said, I'm going to send an angel before you. And Moses freaked. <laughs> you know, do not send us from here if you do not go with us. And we have that wonderful experience of Moses with God on Mount Sinai. And the bottom line is God says, Moses, I'll go with you. And that was assuring to Moses, I'm, I'm not going with them. They will follow you, but I'm going with, with you. So Moses can't even meet with God in the camp anymore because God won't come into the camp. He has withdrawn his immediate presence. And that's where we pick it up in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. What's Moses going to do so he can meet with God? Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, anyone who wanted to, anyone who would seek the Lord, could go out to the tent of meeting and what? Meet with the Lord. And so here we see once again that those who seek the Lord can go out to the tent. You determine your level of intimacy with God. Anybody in that camp could have said, I forsake this, I'm going out there. I'm going to go meet with God. But most of the people, because of their rebellion and sin, had to stay in the camp. And then we see a reference to both of the inner circle and the wider outer circle of intimacy with God in verse 8 of Exodus 33. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would rise and stand, where? Each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now, verse 10 here is one of the most tragic verses in the Bible and all the scriptures. It's a picture of the people in the outer circle 
giving it their best shot, trying to commit themselves, trying to worship themselves, to worship the best they can, but they're worshiping at a distance. With their lips, they were close to God, but with their hearts, they were far away. Verse 10, when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. It seems to me that this describes a lot of American Christians today. They are committed people. They, they are people who are living pretty good lives, but they worship God at a distance. They worship God at a distance, each one standing at the entrance of their own tent. They worship God where they are the most comfortable. They worship God when it's convenient where they are not challenged to enter into God's presence, where they're not challenged to confront the sin that keeps them away from God. It's much like what the people saw in Moses and his experience in intimacy with God. They would watch until Moses would go into the tent and the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory would descend. In other words, their worship of God from a distance was completely dependent upon how Moses was doing and his worship in relationship with God. I think to a lot of people, worship is dependent on what the preacher says or what he doesn't say. Worship is dependent upon what the worship team sings or doesn't sing. Worship is dependent upon whether they totally agree with me or I agree with them. It's dependent upon all these things that are going on in somebody else's life. And then in verse 11, we see that inner circle again. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, there's our young hero again, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Whenever Moses left the tent, Joshua was parked right there. Now, for years I had in my mind Joshua sitting outside the tent. Moses entered the tent, spoke to God intimately, and for some reason, I pictured Joshua outside the tent. Maybe I got that idea when I watched the Ten Commandments and Joshua is always waiting for Moses to come out from someplace, you know, from down the mountain or something like that. That's the way I pictured Joshua outside the tent, guarding the tent, but I really never pictured Joshua as inside the tent of meeting. Then I studied the Hebrew words, and literally it says, Joshua would not depart from out of the tent. He was staying in the tent. He was in the tent of meeting, meeting with God. He was in the inner circle with God, as was Moses. Now, eventually, the tabernacle, which is also called the tent of meeting, the tabernacle would be built in and placed in the center of the camp. And, and God's representative presence where he was present was in the Holy of Holies and those kind of things. But as long as there was the tent of meeting outside the camp, Joshua camped there. No wonder 40 years later that God chose Joshua to lead his people in victory. And it's that same heart, that intimacy with God, experiencing him that will lead us in victory. You see, it takes more than commitment. Now, we've covered a lot of verses here, but now we're really going to get down to it in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. 
the fifth chapter of Joshua. And it's on page 257 in, in the Bibles in the rack. Joshua had experienced the Lord on the mountain when Mo, with Moses and the elders from, the, from, from there they saw the Lord. He walked up the mountain with Moses until the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. At least as I would see it, Joshua was just right there as close as he could get. Then as a way of life, Joshua camped out in the tent of meeting, wherever that tent of meeting might be. He was fellowshipping and, and spending time in God's presence, seeking his face, seeking God, meeting with him. But the clincher in Joshua's experience of God comes from verses 13 through 15 of this fifth chapter of Joshua. This is the day that the manna stopped. Wouldn't that be a great title for a book? <laughs> the day the manna stopped. Because they have crossed the Jordan River, God is not going to provide any longer the way he did while they were in the wilderness. He has turned over the leadership of his people to Joshua. God is going to change how he provides and leads Israel. They're preparing to face many enemies, enter into that promised land. God has put Joshua in charge. The buck had stopped with Moses, now it stops with Joshua. Joshua must have felt overwhelmed. So I know that because Moses was overwhelmed <laughs> with that daunting task. And so Joshua goes out near Jericho, I would think, to take a look at that formidable city. That city with its big walls, that city that stood in the way of what God had promised them. And we pick it up in verse 13 of Joshua 5. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. You know, we've been saying in our Sunday school class how to study the Bible for yourself. Question the text. If he had to lift up his eyes, where were his eyes? They were downcast. They were looking down. I don't know if he was looking down because he was downcast or if he was in prayer. Yes, I think there's all that combination of this going on. But Joshua had read in the book of the law what Moses had said to the Lord after Israel had made the golden calf. Moses had cried out to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And the Lord had made that same promise to Joshua back in chapter 1 that he would be with Joshua just the same way he had been with Moses. And Joshua was refusing to move until he was absolutely sure of the Lord's presence with him. And now God, this is the cool thing, God was going to reaffirm that promise in a personal, experiential, intimate way. Joshua looks up and verse 13 continues, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? It's a great question. Whose side are you on? And the man basically says, Neither. Verse 14, he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And here's where we come to the crux of the matter. It's not whether the Lord is on our side and we can keep our commitment. It's not whether the Lord is against us or who he is against. It's not a matter of our commitment or whether we have what it takes. It's a matter of our surrender. 
to the Lord, who is sovereign over our life. Verse 14 continues. This is where Joshua surrenders. This is so cool. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar? Two things we need to understand in this if we are to experience victory and know an experience of the Lord as did Joshua. The first is, Joshua surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must do the same. Now you might ask, well, I don't see Jesus there. I don't see the word Christ there. How do we know that he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I know he surrendered, at least he surrendered his life to the Lord. But the man with the sword, I believe, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ before he came into this world in human flesh. How do I know that or why do I believe that? It's because he's called the captain of the Lord's host. Literally, it's the word army there. He's captain of the whole, whole army. That can only be the commander-in-chief of the Lord of hosts, the captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else except the Lord Jesus Christ can claim that title. But more than this, Joshua, like Moses at the burning bush, was in the immediate presence of deity. He was in God's presence. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. If it wasn't the captain of the host, then, then the Lord Jesus Christ was still there. You know what? Joshua needed that, that assurance that God's presence would go with him. He'd probably heard a million times Moses talking about the burning bush. Remove your sandals, place where you are standing, and how, how God used that. Now he knew that God is with me the same way he was with Moses all those years. He needed to understand it's not whether God is on our side or we are on God's side, but whether we have bowed down and worshiped and submitted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, have you surrendered to him as Lord? You know, until you do, your commitments to him mean absolutely nothing. Well, this year I've committed to give 10% to the Lord. What about the other 90%? Is that yours? He is Lord of that as well, or he's not Lord at all. What have you committed unto him for the other 90%? Well, you can't commit anything until you surrender everything to him. You know, uh, when I was a young Christian, people used to say, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. I mean, that's really a strange thing. Jesus is either Lord or he's not. It's not whether I make him Lord. In fact, the Bible says God hath made him Lord. He is Lord whether I submit to his lordship or not. He is his Lord. Or I've committed to worship him once a week or, or at least when I can. What about the other six days? Have you surrendered to them have you surrendered those days to him as well? The only way to surrender all into the Lord is surrender yourself to the Lord. And why did Joshua experience victory? And why was Joshua able to keep his commitment, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, when so, so many others had failed miserably? It was because Joshua, as a way of life, knew and experienced the Lord whom he loved and served. He knew him. 
He had surrendered and subjected himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to close with this because it's important. Joshua also lived his life in the inner circle of intimacy with God. He lived in that experience of God. And so secondly, we need to live our lives in God's immediate presence in the inner circle. Remember, you and only you, not God, not the preacher, not the church, not those with whom you live, only you and no one else determines the level of intimacy you have with the Almighty. You are at this moment as close to God as you want to be to God. The people who love you don't determine your intimacy with God. Get this, the people who give you a hard time don't, cons- don't <laughs> determine your intimacy with God. Sometimes they send me running to God. The people you think are in the way don't determine your intimacy with God. The question is, as with the people of Israel, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to submit to him, forsaking all else, even our sin? Are we willing to forsake everything that we are and everything that we have to the lordship of Jesus? And until you settle that, you settle for a less demanding Christian life where it is more comfortable at the entrance of your own tent. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship and this time of getting into your word this morning, Lord. And I I pray and I trust, Lord, that this is a time in the tent of meeting with you. And Father, whatever it is that uh, we, each one of us, need to do this morning, you know, for many of us so long it's been, I need to do this and I need to do that and I need to do this thing and the other. And Lord, show us that we need to come to you. Maybe to surrender our lives and faith and salvation in receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe of saying, Lord, I've tried too long on my own, too. It's been hard, it's been difficult, it's been impossible. And Lord, I trust that you know what's best for my life. I trust that you know all things because you are Lord creator of heaven and earth, creator of me and everybody in this room and everybody in the world. Father, we come before you right now on whatever level we have had to push other things aside and let them go back and keep from holding us back. Lord, we come to you. We come to you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.